Good morning. My name is Ross Queener, and I am an elder here at Trinity Baptist Church. And uh, as mentioned earlier, our pastor Brian and one of our elders, Dave, are in Rwanda. And so I get to come and deliver the sermon this morning. So I'm really happy to be here. And, you know, if you've looked in the bulletin, you may notice that the title of the sermon is The Lord's Prayer. If you're visiting, you might be thinking, oh, I know that one. And so I've just got to tell you, it's not that Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's another one. We've been working through the book of John, and we're now in chapter 17, and it's a, a piece of scripture that's sometimes called uh, the Lord's High Priestly Prayer. Uh, but this morning, we're just going to say that Jesus is praying. And so, uh, you know, this takes place after the Passover dinner, after he's washed their feet, and he's had sort of this extended conversation with them about what's, what's coming, what's going to happen, what's kingdom life like. And, uh, and so he is going to now pray over them. So uh, let me begin by praying over this time, and then we'll launch into this message. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with us here this morning. We're honored by your presence. I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, Lord, and that you would speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that we know that you are for us and that you indeed are with us here. And Lord, I, I lift up uh, Brian and Dave as they're in Rwanda, and I pray that you'd be with them there as they go to church in Rwanda, as they worship with our brothers and sisters there. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that they would have a sense of your presence and that you would um, give them eyes to see the things that you've taken them there for. Jesus, we love you so much, and we pray these things in your awesome name. Amen. Uh, so, in John 16, uh, the Lord talks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit who's to come and some of the things that he's going to do in their lives, and he talks about the Father's great love for the disciples. And, and so, at the end of this section, uh, you know, the disciples say, Lord, now you're speaking plainly. We get it. We believe that you have been sent from God. Now, if I was in Jesus' shoes at this point, I'd be like, high fives all around. You guys have been slow. This has been trouble to get you to this point, but you've made it. Yes. It's Passover. People are in town. Let's go out and meet some friends, right? Um, but Jesus looks at the disciples, and, and, you know, he's had this habit throughout John, and you may remember some of it, where he sort of um, challenges people as they, as they say that, yes, Jesus, we're on your side. And so, for example, there's a point where a big, big crowd of people are following him, and they're in the Jesus party, like, yes, this is so great. He feeds people, he heals them. And so he sort of turns around, and he has this conversation with them. And in the midst of it, he says, you know, if you're going to follow me, You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're like, what? That's not the Jesus that I want to follow. You know, maybe we'll check in with you later. Right now we've got other things to do. We'll, we'll go. And so most of the crowd disperses. The disciples stick around. They're, and Jesus says, well, now, why are you staying? Well, where, where else do we have to go? Right? And so really, this is the sort of faith that Jesus is trying to, to elicit in these people. He's trying to, to strengthen their faith that it would be a resilient faith, that even when they're, when they're faced with things that are confusing or difficult, they're still able to say, well, I really don't know what's happening, but I know that you're the only answer. So, so here we are. And so 
Um, so the disciples have made this, this pronouncement, you know, we believe. And he says, do you? Really? You know, you're all going to desert me. You're going to go home. You're going to leave me alone. I won't be alone. The Father's going to be with me. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Well, if you're a disciple, you're looking at him thinking, the Pharisees are still here. The Romans are still here. Right? You can sort of see Thaddeus in the background elbowing Thomas. He's like, what is he talking about? Thomas is like, I don't know. I've been on the fence the whole time. This is so confusing, right? And so, um, and so Jesus has them at this point. And again, he wants to help build in them a resilient faith. He wants them to question this declaration that they've just made. Because he knows what's coming, right? Pretty soon, they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that the cross is not that far away. And so he's, he's with his disciples, and he's challenging them to, to help give them that resilient faith that they need. And so this, this then brings us to chapter 17. And this prayer of Jesus can sort of be understood in three different parts. And so we're going to work through that. And in each part, there's going to be something that I think is worth holding on to this morning. I mean, it's a prayer of Jesus. I think we should hold on to the whole thing. But this morning, we're just going to look at three different things. Uh, And so I'll highlight those things. And so uh, let's get moving, right? First section, uh, John tells us that Jesus turns his eyes to heaven and he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so, uh, you know, as we look at this, <laughs> there's so much in there, but there's really one thing uh, that, I, that I want to uh, want for us to look at and to sort of hang on to this morning. Jesus paints this picture for them of what eternal life consists of, right? He says, this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so, you know, when I think of of eternal life, that is not what comes to my mind, right? I'm in my mid to late 50s. My knees are cranky. I want this thing to be made new. I don't want a fix-up, right? I want massive renovation. I want replacement. I want a new one. And, And so, right, Scripture says we'll have these new bodies. I tend to think about that a lot. It's like, oh, Lord, it'll be great to have eyes that work perfectly, right? Uh, it's, it's sort of that felt needs sense of eternal life. What is it that I'm really missing here, right? In the life to come, I'm going to get it. And that's true, but that's not the essence of it. Uh, I had some friends who taught English in China for two years. And while they were there, they had a conversation um, with a man about eternal life. And he said, oh, I'll tell you what heaven is. Heaven is an American home and Chinese food and a Japanese wife and a German car. <laughs> Nothing self-centered about that description, right? This, this is not heaven. This is his fantasy life, right? And he's just saying, oh, that's what heaven's going to be. 
Sometimes people think of the afterlife in those terms. Uh, I had a, a coworker once, years and years ago, and when she was a teenager, a priest said, oh, heaven will be wonderful. We're going to pray all the time. That's all we'll do is we'll just spend all of our time praying forever. Can you imagine saying that to a teenager? What was he thinking? She was like, oh, I don't ever want to go to heaven. That sounds horrible, right? And so, uh, you know, it's sort of like the place where you can't run with scissors, like an infinite library. Um, these descriptions of heaven really do a disservice to what the Lord is calling us to. And so Jesus paints this picture when he, when he says that eternal life is that we would know the only true God. Uh, he's, he's, letting, he's letting us know that God is personal and knowable. Right? God is not distant. He's not this, this giant grandpa sitting in his recliner waiting for somebody to come and visit. He's not this amorphous um, essence that populates the universe. He's personal and he's knowable. Right? Eternal life is going to be, uh, the essence of it is going to be the best relationship you've ever had with the best person you've ever met. And it's going to last forever. Right, that, it is going to be so deeply fulfilling. And so when Jesus talks to his disciples, when he prays to the Father about eternal life, this is the picture he's painting. That our belief leads us into true relationship with the Lord. And so that's the first thing I think we want to hang on to here, is that belief leads to knowing in a very personal, experiential way the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Right? Our belief should lead us into a real relationship that we experience with the Father. And so then Jesus comes to the section, second section of the prayer, and I'm going to pick up in verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. In this section of the prayer, Jesus prays that his disciples would not be taken out of the world, right? He knows that he's about to go to the cross, and then after the resurrection, 40 days later, he'll ascend to the Father. He knows all of this. Uh, they're not going to make that trip, not right now, right? He's leaving them in the world, and so he's praying for them. Uh, but he notes that just as he's not of the world, that they are not of the world. They should not be living according to the world's values. And this has been part of his teaching all along, right? When they, when they had this fight about who's going to be the greatest among us, he said, man, that's, that's an argument that, that people outside of God's kingdom have, right? You want, you want to be the greatest? You should be the servant of all, right? That's what Jesus modeled. That's, that's the kind of leadership he was giving them. When he talked to them about prayer, right, one of the practices at the time was people that wanted everyone to know how pious they were would go out to 
you know, the streets, and they would have these loud, lengthy prayers. He says, don't do that. This, this relationship, it, it, it's not for show. Stay at home in a quiet place. Pray privately so that your Father in heaven will hear you. And so he's, he's projecting for them a different type of life, right? That religion is not for show, that there's an actual relationship here. And so as he prepares to leave, he wants them to know that his mission is not dead. They're, they're, they're still going to be living out these kingdom values that he's been talking about the whole time. Now, you can consider the difference that this can make in our own lives, right? It's entirely possible to be a law-abiding citizen, a, a perfectly law-abiding citizen, and to still be somebody that nobody wants to know, right? Being drunk all the time, uh, there's nothing illegal about that, as long as you don't drive while you do it, some other things, right? Um, being mean and nasty, uh, that's actually kind of common. There's, it's not illegal as long as you don't cross certain lines. You can be law-abiding and still be a terrible person. Sometimes, right, we want to take our cues from the culture around us. You can, you can be living in resonance with the culture and still not be living a very good life, right? Self-promotion is, is really common in our culture, and people feel like they should be able to do it. It's, it's something they want to do, show everybody how great they are. Um, right? It breeds narcissism. Uh, living without any sexual boundaries. Uh, this, in places, is championed as a good thing. It can actually lead to some really self-destructive behavior. Uh, and yet our culture has these values that we can live in, in resonance with our culture and still leave ter lead terrible lives. And so, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to take our cues from the government or from our culture. We need to take our cues from Jesus. He, he has this kingdom life that he describes for us. And that if we're living that life, we're going to be loving and joyful. We'll experience his peace. We'll have patience. There will be a sense of goodness about who we are, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is, this is the type of life that he is talking about to his disciples. And so this is the type of life that we should be leading. Uh, the law isn't our standard. Our cultural values aren't our standard. We live by the standard that Jesus has given us. So Jesus asked the Father to sanctify the disciples by truth. What's the truth? Well, Jesus says uh, that the Father's word is truth. We're sanctified, set apart from the world by the word, by the word Jesus, right? He's the word. And believing that he has come from the Father to die for us. We're set apart by believing in him, and then we learn to live it out. Right? We, don't, we don't become part of the kingdom by following rules. We're set apart by believing, and then we learn to live it out. And then finally, he connects that being set apart from the world to their being sent as he was sent. In his prayer, the Lord is saying that this, this sanctification shouldn't wall them off from the people around them, but rather it should propel them towards the people around them. Right? Being sanctified, being set apart, doesn't eliminate interaction with the people around you. It should propel you toward them. And so uh, this, I think, is the second thing we want to hang on to. The first was that our belief leads to knowing the only true God and Jesus whom he sent. And the second thing is that our belief in the truth should both set us apart from the world 
and send us to it, right? Our being set apart should send us to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, to the people around us that don't believe, shouldn't wall us off. And then we come to this third section of this prayer, and so I'm going to pick up in verse 20. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so we, we read through this, and in verses 20 through 23, there's sort of a, a common request that Jesus hits a few times, and it's this, this request for unity among the people that follow him, right, that we would all be one. Well, in what regard are we all one, right? I, I think there are two aspects to this. Uh, you know, in, in one sense, it's sort of the, the macro sense, the, the largest sense. Uh, in what way are we one with the early church in the book of Acts? In what way are we one with them? In what way are we one with the Messianic congregation that meets in this church later today? In what way are they one with each other? In what way are we one with the second century church that was in Africa? In what sense are we one with the African church that meets in this building later today? In what sense are we one with the church in Rwanda, right, that, that Brian and Dave are attending this morning? Well, we all have this common confession of faith. We all believe that Jesus is sent from the Father and that he's come to save us. And so we believe because of this common confession of faith, we believe that at the end of time, we will all be together, all of us. We are one. And so that's sort of this, this historical theological sense. We may not feel it when we read about it, when we think about it. We might think, wow, that's really beautiful. I bet that's going to be awesome. Uh, but we don't immediately experience it. Uh, but then there is that experiential sense of oneness, right? The sense of connection that we may or may not have as we attend church, as we come together. Uh, this, this sense of our oneness has to do with, with choosing. We have to choose to connect with each other. We have to make choices to, to be one. And the programs of the church can facilitate this. The church can do some really good things to help make this happen, uh, but the church can't make us relate to each other. We have, to, we have to look at what Jesus is calling us to and say yes to this. And, you know, if you've been here long enough, uh, I, I think of the first few years I was in the church, and there was a collection of people that Cindy and I, my wife, you know, were, were very connected to, we were tight with. It's New York. After about five years, most of those people are somewhere else on planet Earth, right? They move along. And those of you that have been here a while know exactly what I'm talking about. And then one day you walk into church, you're like, holy smoke, I don't know if I know anybody. 
Uh, you have to go through this process again. You're a new person all over again, even though you've been here five years, seven years, 12, 15 years. You have to make that effort. And so, you know, I acknowledge uh, it does take effort. It takes intentionality. And so we need to choose to make that choice. Uh, there's, there's another piece of this for us, though, and that is um, in, in this church, you also need to choose to learn how to connect well with people that are from a different cultural group than you're from, from a different background, uh, right? I need, I need to be good about continuing to learn what it means to connect with people that aren't, you know, white middle-class people, right? Uh, this church has a lot of different people in it. I need, uh, I need to, you know, as I think about what it means to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, uh, as a white person, I need to consider what it means to mourn with those people here that are not white, and there's all of this garbage that gets heaped on people because they're not white. Uh, it's not part of my experience, but I do need to learn how to mourn with those that mourn. I need to understand what's happening to my brothers and sisters around me and to be able to connect with them, right? That's on me to be open to that. Each of us has some process where we need to grow. We need to be better at connecting with the people that are around us. It's part of the beauty of this congregation. We're so different. We're so eclectic. Uh, it can create some problems. It's beautiful, but it can create some problems. We need to choose to navigate the issues that arise in us because of our differences. Uh, and so... If we, if we do continue to, to make that choice to connect, we continue to choose to learn about the people around us uh, and, and what it means to connect well with them, uh, we will be growing in our oneness, right? We're all in this together. It's just like high school musical. You know that song at the end? Any fans? Yes. We should have had the worship team sing this afterwards. We're all in this together. All right. Um, yeah, but, but we can grow in that. And we need to grow in that. That's, that's something we have to be intentional about. Why is this important? Jesus tells us in verse 23 that, it, that this oneness is so that the world may believe, the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus and that he loves us. Our oneness as a body, our capacity to love each other is a witness to the world that Jesus is real and that his love for us is real. And so it's important. It's not easy. Our culture values independence. It encourages us to shun commitment. No, I don't want to sign up for anything. Um, but if we live as one in our diversity through our challenges and still love each other, uh, this is a statement about who God is. This brings glory to his name as we live as he's called us to live. If you choose to stay on the fringes of community, you're just not going to experience it, right? And so I'm not about to say this is the community, this is it. Um, there are other places to connect. Uh, really, the hope and desire is that each and every one of us would be involved in a community where we truly connect, where we make those connections. If it's not here, then please find that place. I really hope that each and every one of us would be connected that way. And so there are three things that we want to hang on to from this passage. And 
the worship uh, band, if you guys want to start coming up, that's fine. Uh, the first thing, our belief leads to personally knowing the only true God and Jesus, whom he has sent. The second thing is that our belief in the truth should both set us apart from the world and send us to it. It should not keep us from being connected to the world, but it should serve to propel us towards those that don't know Christ. And the third thing that we can hang on to is that Jesus connects us to God and to one another, right? And so as we, you know, we have our believe and experience, uh, we believe that we're one in Christ who is one with God, and hopefully through that we can continue to experience unity and diversity. We can in fact grow in our experience of unity and diversity.